continuing our consideration of protein three-dimensional structure. So the long chain of a polypeptide does not assume a random coil configuration in space, but amazingly folds into a precisely defined three-dimensional shape each and every time. That is, each of the billions of protein molecules of a given kind with a specific name and sequence are superimposable, atom for atom. Well, what is holding the molecule in this shape? The four weak bond types we discussed earlier, plus one new bond to, to be described in a few minutes. Let's consider how this folding looks in more detail. First, the flexible rope was not a good representation of even the backbone, because the peptide bond itself imposes some constraint on structure. The peptide bond itself has a property that influences all polypeptides. Because of the electronegativity difference between carbon and oxygen, and carbon and nitrogen, there's a partial separation of charge, one you could now have predicted. What you may not have realized is that the partial positive charge on the carbon and the partial negative charge on the adjacent nitrogen imparts a partial extra bond between these two atoms and thus a partial double bond character to the CN bond. This partial double bond is sufficient to stop free rotation about the carbon-nitrogen bond. Remember the lack of rotation about the double bond in an unsaturated fatty acid causing a kink? Thus the backbone is not free to rotate around all connections, but rather each repeat contains six atoms confined to one plane as shown in the diagram above. The polypeptide can be visualized as having a series of planes, each able to rotate about one another. So a chain would be a better representation than a rope. This partial separation of charge also means that the oxygen and the NH of the peptide bond can hydrogen bond to water, for example. And since the NH is a hydrogen donor and the oxygen is a hydrogen acceptor for a hydrogen bond, we should consider the possibility that these groups can hydrogen bond to each other. But hydrogen bonds require a linear orientation of the three atoms involved. So certainly the NH of the very next residue cannot hydrogen bond to a C double bond O preceding it. But what about the NH on the next residue down from a given C double bond O? Now, still can't make it. But by the fifth residue down, you're able to line up an NH to the oxygen. CO hydrogen bond HN. That is, there are three complete residues in between the two residues that are involved in the binding, as shown in the diagram above. After the turn between residues 3 and 4, the letters for the atoms have been drawn backwards to indicate that the chain is circling around to achieve this position. Note that many atoms have been left out so that the relevant atoms can be more clearly seen. So the CO of residue number 1 can hydrogen bond to the HN of residue number 5. But then also, the CO of residue number 2 should be able to hydrogen bond to the HN of number 6. 
and so on. This twisting and hydrogen bonding can hold the backbone in a helix, the so-called alpha helix, as shown in the diagram below. The alpha helix is an example of secondary structure, which is structure produced by regular, repeated interactions between atoms of the backbone, the backbone only. We might expect all the amino acid backbone atoms to be in an alpha helical conformation, but we've left out consideration of the side chains, which can greatly influence the folding, as we'll see in a minute. As you can see, the side chains are sticking out from the helix. The alpha helix is not the only form of secondary structure. There is another, the beta pleated sheet. In this case, we have again the CO and the NH of the backbone forming hydrogen bonds to each other. But in this case, two sections of the polypeptide are aligned side by side. Several sections of the polypeptide can line up like this to produce a sheet of strands. The chains are usually anti-parallel, but parallel alignments are also possible. Every other residue hydrogen bonds to a strand alongside. The side groups stick out both above and below the sheet that's formed from these hydrogen bonded strands. Once again, side chain interactions play a major role, role in allowing or disallowing each secondary structure to form. But in fact, most proteins do have extensive regions folded into alpha helices and beta pleated sheets. See your text for better pictures of these structures. Becker, page 49, Purvis, page 55. Here's a place where the text really helps with its diagrams. See also your handout on protein structure. Secondary structure consists mostly of these two structures, the alpha helix and the beta pleated sheet. Tertiary structure means the overall three-dimensional folding of a single polypeptide chain. For this overall shape, interactions between side chains are very important, as are interactions between the side chains and water. A generality is that the hydrophilic groups are folded to be on the outside, where they can interact with water via hydrogen bonds, while the hydrophobic side chains are collected on the inside of the structure, pushed together by hydrophobic forces. This rule is not at all 100% true and most proteins have side chains that deviate from this generality. That is, there are hydrophobic side chains on the surface, but they are intermingled among the hydrophilic groups. And there are hydrophilic groups on the inside where they're, where they're usually interacting with other hydrophilic groups. In fact, it's this interaction of side chains with each other that confers most of the overall three-dimensional shape on a given polypeptide. Pictured here are the weak bonds that were introduced earlier. The side chain interaction indicated in the diagram illustrate examples of these various interactions. Consult your text for the exact nature of the side chains. One, ionic, for instance, lysine with its positive charge with aspartic acid with its negative charge. Two, hydrophobic and van der Waals interactions. For example, phenylalanine with its hydrocarbon side chain and valine also with a hydrocarbon side chain.
three hydrogen bonds, for example, serine with its hydroxyl, with another serine, with another hydroxyl group. Four, combination hydrogen bond to ionic, for example, aspartic acid with its full charge interacting with asparagine, a highly polar but uncharged side chain, which can interact with the ion via hydrogen bonds. Five, van der Waals interactions by themselves. For example, serine, a hydrophilic side chain, and alanine, slightly hydrophobic, could still interact if closely opposed via van der Waals interactions. Most proteins fold into a roughly globular shape. Most enzymes do this, also hemoglobin, for example, antibodies. You can see pictures of the enzyme lysozyme in a space-filling model, or showing just the backbone connections or a ribbon model in Purvis figure 318, which is linked. But many take on an elongated or even a fibrous shape, like collagen, myosin, a muscle protein, fibrin found in silk. These are weak bonds, but in the aggregate, they're strong enough to hold the polypeptide together, at least under the thermal motion conditions of physiological temperature, 37 degrees centigrade. There is one strong bond that contributes to the folding of some proteins. This is the disulfide bond, and it differs from all these other bonds in being a covalent bond. It can only be formed between the side chains of two cysteine residues. The side chain, CH2SH, contains a sulfhydryl group, which is SH. Two sulfhydryls can react with oxygen to lose their two hydrogen atoms. Hydrogen with its electron, not H plus ions, not protons and become bound to each other in the process. A protein with a CH2SH, with another molecule of protein with a CH2SH, plus half a molecule of oxygen, can give rise then to water from the oxygen taking on the two hydrogens, and the, pro the two proteins or protein regions connected with a CH2SSCH2 bond. Now the two sulfur atoms are sharing electrons in a strong covalent bond. This bond cannot be broken by mere thermal energy, so two and so disulfide bonds hold the two parts of the polypeptide chains that had contained the two cysteines firmly together. Not all proteins have disulfide bonds as these are called, but many do. This reaction is an example of an oxidation-reduction reaction. The sulfhydrals are getting oxidized. Here, oxidation means losing hydrogen atoms, while the oxygen is getting reduced, or gaining hydrogen atoms, and ending up as water. This reaction will take place rapidly with no further help from catalysts. Note that it is not a hydrogen ion, proton, or H+, that is being moved about here, but the hydrogen atom with its electron. Actually, it is the electrons that accompany the hydrogen atom that are fundamental to the definition of oxidation-reduction, 
rather than the hydrogen atoms as a whole, as we'll see later. That is, oxidation is the loss of electrons, and reduction is the gain of electrons, with or without an accompanying hydrogen atom. Whenever there's an oxidation, there is always an accompanying reduction, and vice versa. The net result is tertiary structure, or the overall three-dimensional shape of a folded-up single polypeptide. Note there will be many regions of secondary structure within this overall tertiary structure. It's the interactions of the side chains that are to a large extent responsible for preventing the whole polypeptide from simply becoming 100% alpha helix or 100% beta sheet. So now we can see that one polypeptide molecule can be folded into a compact structure, and we can understand what holds it together. But why is it that there's only one structure formed and not many? Is there only one solution to the folding problem for a particular polypeptide chain? Perhaps all possible conformations are tried in the course of folding, and only one is the most stable and accumulates. Can we predict the conformation from first principles? If we plug in the properties of all the amino acid side chains, how hydrophobic they are, what is the strength of an ionic bond, etc., we can ask a computer to try and try many combinations, many interactions. This is a very difficult computer problem, even for today's supercomputers, because the number of possibilities for a good-sized polypeptide of, say, 500 amino acids is enormous, of the order of 20 to the 500. But it has been tried, and so far usually the wrong structure comes out. The right structure is determined by examining crystals of the protein, beaming x-rays through the protein crystals, and calculating how they're refracted by the atoms in the crystal. Perhaps we really don't know the right properties of the side chains, or perhaps there's some guide to folding that is being imposed on the polypeptide as it's being polymerized in the cell, some outside influence, even a template of sorts. One could imagine a plaster mold analogy or some kind of a camera lucida. Well, if it's true that the folded structure of a particular protein is unique simply because it is the most stable, then if we unfold the polypeptide, it should be able to refold into its unique structure. How could we unfold a protein? Let's say one with no disulfide bonds, only weak bonds. We could consider egg albumin for an everyday case of a polypeptide denaturation, as this unfolding is called. Raw egg white is a concentrated solution of this single, approximately 500 amino acid long polypeptide that exists folded into a roughly spherical shape. How can we denature it? Here's some examples. Heat. Thermal motion becomes too great for the weak bonds. pH. Acids and bases both work, disturbing ionic bonds. So-called chaotropic agents, such as a very high concentration, say 8 molar, of urea, which has the structure amine group, C double bond O, followed by another amine group. This can form so many hydrogen bonds that the urea molecules can compete with and disrupt interactions with water. Organic solvents, 
for example, hydrocarbons like octane, benzene, chloroform, they would turn the polypeptide inside out as the hydrophobic forces disappear. These are all denaturing conditions. After denaturing the pure polypeptide, we could try to reverse the disruption. Let's heat it, boil it. The sphere of albumin is now subject to faster and faster thermal motions until finally it starts to unravel. What has happened to the egg white, the albumin polypeptide, it has become denatured. No longer native, which is the structure in the cell. No covalent bonds have been broken by this 100 degree temperature. The bundled up rope model became the open, randomly coiled rope in the jacuzzi, and this allowed many wrong bonds to form. It exposed the hydrophobic groups normally hidden in the interior of the protein. In this concentrated solution, a tangled mass of interacting polypeptide chains was produced, which resulted in a gel, a hot, hard-boiled egg. So while folded up polypeptides are stable enough in their native environment inside the cell, the three-dimensional structure is typically rather fragile. Most proteins are easily denatured by heat and other treatments that can affect these weak bonds. This bundled rope in the jacuzzi exists on the verge of becoming unraveled. So now let's reverse the denaturation. Let's cool down this hard-boiled egg and return it to normal temperatures. The gel seems to stay. We do not get back our runny egg white. A case of irreversible denaturation. But not a very fair experiment, letting all those molecules get so tangled. Let's try a denaturation-renaturation experiment in a more gentle, gradual way. A fellow named Christian Anthonson did this experiment in the 50s. He took a protein called ribonuclease, a protein that is a digestive enzyme, a protein that helps break down the macromolecule RNA. It must be in its native structure to do this job. Actually, he had to break disulfides here to get full denaturation. So he did. He added a reducing agent, mercaptoethanol, with the structure hydroxyl, CH2, CH2, SH. In the presence of this reagent, one gets exchange among the disulfides and the sulfhydrals. So a protein which has a CH2, SS, CH2, other part of the protein bond, a disulfide, treated with two molecules of mercaptoethanol with its SH group, can exchange the hydrogens, if you add enough of the mercaptoethanol, such that the mercaptoethanol now becomes linked to another mercaptoethanol in a disulfide bond, and the two hydrogens associated with the mercaptoethanol, SH, end up adding to across the, bond, the disulfide bond in the protein, producing sulfhydryl groups again. The protein's disulfide gets reduced, and the SS bond cleaved, while the mercaptoethanol gets oxidized. After disruption of the disulfide bonds in ribonuclease, Amphenson placed the polypeptide in a sac and added urea to the solution outside the sac. Urea will break the hydrogen bonds when present at high concentrations. 
The sack is made of a semi-permeable plastic material with pores big enough to allow small molecules like urea and water to pass through, but not macromolecules like albumin or ribonuclease in this case. This process of allowing the concentration of small molecules to change while holding the concentrations of large molecules constant is called dialysis. After allowing time for diffusion, the concentration of urea inside the sac should be the same as the concentration outside. He then checked that the protein had become denatured, for example, by ultracentrifugation, as we'll see below. Now, he gradually dialyzed out the urea by changing the solution outside the sac to stepwise lower and lower concentrations of urea. A dilute solution of the protein was used, and the gradual removal of the urea gave time for the polypeptide to refold. He then exposed the polypeptide to oxygen to get back the disulfide from the correctly positioned cysteine side chains. He got back native ribonuclease. It checked out physically and also functionally by the fact that it regained its ability to digest RNA. This type of experiment has now been repeated many times for many different proteins. It works for many, fails for some. But the positive results are very important, for they prove that for many or even most proteins, all of the information that's necessary for the complex and unique three-dimensional structure is present in the primary sequence of the polypeptide chain. That is, primary structure determines tertiary structure. This conclusion was a major step in biochemistry and earned Anfinson a Nobel Prize. That said, it must be added that in the past five or ten years it's become apparent that some special proteins called chaperonins can help certain other proteins to fold within the cell. It seems that these chaperonins may be needed not so much for initial folding, but when proteins denature inside the cell, for instance, after they have traversed a membrane, with its hydrophobic environment, or after cells have been exposed briefly to slightly elevated temperatures, called heat shock, when a few of the least stable proteins may start to denature. The role, the generality, and the mechanism by which these proteins aid other proteins in folding correctly is not yet well understood. However, these cases do not really detract from the general principle that primary sequence can determine all higher-order structures. Tertiary structure describes folding of a single polypeptide, and while many proteins do consist of a single chain, most are composed of several distinct polypeptide chains. The association of these separate chains is known as quaternary structure. The number of polypeptides in a protein can be 2, 4, 8, or more, or odd numbers like 3, although this is rarer. These chains are folded up in three dimensions, assuming a tertiary structure, and then are stuck to each other. What keeps them stuck together? The same answer as usual, those weak bonds we keep discussing, and more rarely, the covalent disulfides. Proteins with quaternary structure are called multimeric proteins. Individual polypeptides are called subunits of the protein. One polypeptide chain can be considered a monomer, relatively speaking. A protein with four chains is a tetramer, etc. 
The subunits can be identical, called homopolymeric, or there can be or they can be different polypeptides or heteropolymeric. Now we can distinguish a protein from a polypeptide. In its native form, the macromolecule is called a protein and may consist of one or more polypeptides, depending on the protein. For example, hemoglobin has the structure alpha-2, beta-2, consisting of four polypeptides, two alpha chains and two beta chains, of molecular weight 16,000 each. So the molecular weight of the hemoglobin protein, the tetramer, is 64,000. If you denature a multimeric protein, the molecular weight will change, unless the subunits are held together with disulfide bonds and you don't disrupt them. For example, the molecular weight changes from 64,000 to 16,000 upon denaturation of hemoglobin. The subunits of some multimeric proteins are held together by disulfide bonds in addition to the usual weak bonds. For example, the antibody molecule, immunoglobulin, is a tetramer of two identical heavy chains, H, and two identical light chains, L, or H2L2, and it includes SS bonds between the H and L chains. You must denature and reduce the disulfides to get the individual subunit polypeptides dissociated from each other. So the surfaces of polypeptides have also evolved to allow interaction with other particular subunits, but not with other proteins in general. Consider now sickle cell disease again. Hemoglobin's a tetramer of two pairs of identical subunits, alpha-2, beta-2. Glutamic acid going to valine was the amino acid change comparing normal hemoglobin to sickle hemoglobin, or hemoglobin S. The result is that the tetramers inappropriately interact, presumably via, via hydrophobic interactions that in normal hemoglobin are precluded by the charged glutamic acids. In hemoglobin S, this position is valine and now have a more hydrophobic patch of surface. The result is these patches can now get stuck together by hydrophobic forces. And aided by the fact that each hemoglobin S molecule has two such patches, one for each alpha chain, and the concentration of hemoglobin molecules inside a red blood cell is very high, they can almost be viewed as bags of hemoglobin, you get long chains of tetramers. And these long arrays can distort the shape of the red blood cell into a sickle shape. This shape is not a hy as hydrodynamic as the original red blood cell shape, and the red blood cells can now get clogged in small capillaries, which is the manifestation of the disease. One amino acid out of 250 was responsible. Once again, we see that proteins are fragile and are often on the brink of stability. There are some non-amino acid components of proteins that are so tightly bound they're considered part of the protein. These small molecules are usually essential for the function of the protein. For example, in hemoglobin, the heme groups are actually organic ring compounds with an iron atom at their center. And it is this iron atom that actually binds the oxygen that's carried by the hemoglobin protein. Some of the vitamins become prosthetic groups. For example, riboflavin, 
See Becker, page 427, for the heme structure. It's also in the protein structure handout. While we're on the subject of proteins, let's take some time once again to discuss some methodology. In this case, the purification of individual proteins, which involves their separation from all the other proteins in the cell. Much of what we want to know about proteins requires that we have a pure preparation containing only protein molecules of one homogeneous type. Since there are 3,000 different types of protein molecules in E. coli, our task will be to separate one away from all 2,999 others to purify it. The word separate usually causes confusion at this point. In the context of purifications, separate is used as a relatively passive action, operating on a mixture without altering the components greatly, for example, to separate the wheat from the chaff. Our primary objective here will not be to cleave molecules, like I'm going to separate your head from your body, although some cleavages may occur in the course of an experiment, for example, cleavage of the disulfides of aminoglobulin in order to effect a separation of the individual subunits. How can we proceed to purify a protein? Well, what makes one protein different from another? Can you think of some characteristics? There's size, or molecular weight, charge, net charge, their shape, their hydrophobicity, or solubility, their surface binding ability. All of these are used in what is still a challenging task for any biochemistry laboratory, the purification of its favorite protein. Here's one sometimes useful method, ultra-centrifugation. Ultra means greater than about 20,000 RPM. 60,000 RPM is common. Compare a Ferrari at 6,000 RPM, it's redlining. 60,000 is 10 times faster. You need a vacuum chamber so that you don't get heat from air friction. So you can see in the diagram, put your molecules at the top of a tube. The tube then spins in the ultracentrifuge for hours at very high speed. Under these conditions, the larger molecules sediment faster and the smaller molecules sediment more slowly. We can consider the forces on these molecules that are responsible. A mixture of molecules will be subject to two main forces in the ultracentrifuge as it starts to spin we ignore buoyant or the floating forces. Causing sedimentation is the centrifugal force, which is equal to m omega squared r. So you can see this proportionality to the mass of molecular weight, since m is equal to the mass of the particle or molecule. Omega is the angular velocity, that's the RPMs, and R is the distance from the center of rotation. Opposing sedimentation is friction, which can be expressed as F naught V. F naught is known as the frictional coefficient, which is a constant for any particular protein. It's minimum for a sphere and higher for less, complex, less compact shapes, like cigar shapes or pancake shapes. V is the velocity of the molecule as it moves away from the center of rotation. Soon after accelerating, V increases 
to a point where no further acceleration takes place. As the forces on the molecule are balanced, it continues to sediment, but now at a constant velocity. Now at this point, at this velocity, centrifugal force is equal to the frictional force. There's no net force, no acceleration, but constant velocity. So at this point, which is very soon achieved, m omega squared r, the centrifugal force, is equal to f naught v, the frictional force. And so v, solving for v, v equals m omega squared r divided by f naught. F is a frictional coefficient that depends on shape. To visualize the effect of shape on friction, compare the velocity of a falling feather versus a tiny pebble of equal weight dropped in the fluid of air. The higher the F, the more friction. If we assume a spherical shape, which is common for many proteins, then we can estimate a molecular weight. We assume F naught and then measure V and R, we can solve for M, or the molecular weight. On the other hand, if we know the molecular weight, we can get information about the shape via the F naught frictional coefficient. Sedimentation velocities often ma- measured in units called Svedbergs, which takes the centrif- centrifugation conditions into account, where S, a Svedberg, is equal to V over omega squared R. These are variables only dependent on the machine. And so M is, can be expressed as equal to S, so defined, times the frictional coefficient. So ultracentrifugation separates proteins on the basis of molecular weight and shape. It's a gentle procedure. It's non-denaturing. can be carried out at a nice low temperature, say, 4 degrees centigrade, which tends to stabilize proteins, and in the presence of a buffer at pH 7 and physiological levels of salts. You can recover your protein after centrifugation by punching a hole in the bottom of the centrifuge tube and collecting the solution in a series of tubes as it drips out of the bottom. Each tube can then be examined or assayed for the presence of the protein to be purified. For this purpose, you need to be able to detect the protein in the midst of other proteins. For example, if you are purifying amphacin's ribonuclease, you could measure the ability of the tube contents to catalyze the breakdown of RNA to its monomers. How about separation on the basis of the net charge of a protein? We separated amino acids on the basis of charge in paper electrophoresis. For proteins, the solid supporting material is a gel not paper. There are two types of gel electrophoresis. First, native gel electrophoresis. Acrylamide, which is a monomer in this chemistry, in aqueous solution will polymerize, or can be made to polymerize, to polyacrylamide. The result is a network of polymer fibers, which form a gel with the consistency approximating jello. So this type of electrophoresis is called polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis, or PAGE, P-A-G-E. Usually a vertical apparatus is used with an anode and a cathode. The protein mixture is applied to the top of a slab of this gel. 
Voltage is applied, typically a couple of hundred volts. The gel consists of a tight fiber network, so proteins have trouble migrating, negotiating their way through the tangled fibers. Their rate of migration depends on two properties, their net charge and their size, which is proportional to their molecular weight if they're spherical. Molecules with the most charge of a sign opposite to that of the far electrode migrate to the far electrode fastest. Molecules that are smallest, the lowest molecular weight, can worm their way through the gel fibers fastest. So the smallest and most highly charged wins the race. After the electrophoresis has been stopped, molecules will be distributed along the gel length according to these two characteristics of molecular weight and net charge. Note that molecules with a charge opposite to the near electrode will migrate up and off the gel into the buffer reservoir and will be lost. Trial and error will dictate how you set up the electrophoresis if you don't know the charge on the protein you're trying to isolate. Second, a more widely used variation of gel electrophoresis called SDS page. Here you add sodium dodecyl sulfate, or SDS, sometimes called SLS, which has the formula 12CH2 or CH3 hydrocarbon groups capped by a sulfate group, SO4, minus minus. Sulfate is similar in structure to phosphate and is a strong acid. Like a phospholipid, SDS has a highly polar end and a highly hydrophobic body. Might you expect SDS to denature a protein? Yes. It's a detergent and a powerful denaturant. It binds all over the protein, coating every protein with a near uniform negative charge. SDS is put into the gel and when you, when you form it, and into the electrophoresis buffer. You now run SDS page. Where should the anode be placed? Does it matter? Yes, the protein is coated with negative charge, so the anode is always at the bottom. Under these denaturing conditions, the polypeptides exist as random coils, which then migrate solely on the basis of their size, which is the equivalent of a sphere for all polypeptides. Larger molecules have more difficulty finding their way through the polyacrylamate fibers, so the lowest molecular weight wins. <coughs> and charge then, uh, is not a factor. That whatever that charge was is swamped out by the charge on the SDS molecules that coat the protein. One must remember to reduce the disulfides with mercaptoethanol first, usually, so as to have a truly random coil to compare. If you run standards of known molecular weight, proteins of known molecular weight, you can determine the molecular weight of your protein by comparison. And this is a very common way to assign a molecular weight to a polypeptide. However, it's not always completely accurate as some proteins probably do bind a bit more SDS than others. If you don't yet know what a protein does, you can just call it by its molecular weight from the SDS gel determination. For example, P53, a famous protein whose absence is associated with cancer, was named this way. And the name has stuck, even though quite a lot is known about its function now. The P in P53 stands for protein. So you have names like P27, P100, etc. 
if you want to know the molecular weight of a protein in its native, even quaternary structure, for this we could use molecular sieve chromatography, or cephidex, or gel filtration. These are all approximately synonymous terms. You start with plastic-like beads in a glass column with a support screen on the bottom. Add your protein mixture to the top. Now elute with a buffer. The beads are riddled with channels of a specified size. If a protein is smaller than the channel size, it enters, explores, diffuses out, finally, having wasted its time in the race to the bottom of the column. Larger proteins can't fit into the channels. Don't waste their time and win the race. Intermediate sizes waste some time, but less than the smaller proteins. So larger molecules come out, or elute, first, and the smallest come out last. Here again, you would collect the eluted proteins in a series of tubes, and then assay each tube for the presence of the protein being purified. If you calibrate the column by noting the behavior of spherical proteins of known size, you can determine the molecular weight of your protein by comparison, if it is also spherical. If it's not spherical, it will appear to have a higher molecular weight than its true molecular weight. Imagine a pancake being excluded from a channel while a sphere of the same molecular weight gets in. Other methods include ion exchange chromatography, which also takes advantage of the net charge on a protein, and affinity chromatography, which takes advantage of the surface properties of a protein, which we'll discuss next. One can purify a particular protein away from all other proteins in four or five such steps. For more on protein separation techniques, see the protein separation handout. Next time, we'll start to discuss protein function and some final aspects of protein structure.